Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, alongside our guest, Brennan Breed, we are sending ourselves back through time to a year when Schwarzenegger was still an action star, and when Guns N' Roses was still a relevant band, and when you could still They're get still anywhere relevant. in Los They're Angeles without getting stuck in traffic. You stepped on my joke, Adam. Please back off. <laughs> today, we are talking about 1991's Terminator 2, and in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Brennan and Adam how James Cameron's classic might help us think about life and the church and the world. And in our second segment, preaching to the choir. We're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you can do with Terminator 2 for this upcoming Sunday, which I think is a fine idea for every preacher who listens to this, which will be the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, which is September 22nd. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far, let me introduce our guest, Brennan Breed. Brennan is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta, newly tenured. Congratulations, Brennan. We've had him on the show before. We're thrilled to have him back today to help us sort through all of this schwarzenegger goodness. Brennan, welcome back to the show. Did you guys cue up the bad to the bone song? I thought that was supposed to come on right now before I said hello. Hi, thanks thanks for having me, guys. We'll we'll get it in post. Okay, thank you. So way back in 1984, a basically unknown director named James Cameron put out a pretty low-budget sci-fi movie called The Terminator – where Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a robot sent back from the future to, to kill a woman named Sarah Connor, who is mother of the future leader of the human rebellion against the robots. If that sounds complicated, I have bad news for the rest of this, because it gets much worse. That movie is a surprise hit. It establishes Cameron as a major new voice, and after he goes off to make Aliens and the Abyss, the gang gets back together for Terminator 2, This time around, the robots are after John Connor himself, Sarah's son, and they send back a new kind of Terminator, the T-1000, a piece of metal that can take any shape, and the good guys are stuck with the old old model, which is, you guessed it, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Shape-shifting metal is a pretty expensive parlor trick in 1991, so this is now the priciest movie ever made when it comes out, coming in at over $100 million, but doubling that at the box office. And more than that, the movie gets into the zeitgeist real quick. It feels monumental and important somehow. I was 12 when this thing came out, and my mother took me to see the movie because she thought it was saying something. So I want to figure out why T2 has the weight that it does. And Brennan, I'm hoping you can help. Why are we talking about this movie in 2019? And how can it help us think about ministry and theology and God? 
Well, uh, yeah, thanks for that intro. I, uh, I too wonder what it can say for today. I mean, I, uh, I also remember going to see the movie back in 1991 and, uh, my mother didn't take me, but I think my grandfather did, uh, because he was the one who would take me to movies that he didn't care about and then sleep during them. Um, but I, my, <laughs> my older brother and I went with him, but I remember watching the movie and I remember it being just this incredibly impactful movie. And I remember, I mean, the scene that I remember most that still sticks with me today is that uh, uh, the the scene of the atomic bomb, mm. uh, the, the blowing up, you know, and like you know the, that kind of apocalyptic scene? And I remember hearing about nuclear warfare when I was younger than than when I was when I saw this movie. But I'd also remember not really uh, visualizing it very much or thinking about what it would be like, and then thinking about, of course, death and death of the senseless death of lots of people and things like this. And I I remember that that image sticking with me. And I think that's that it's the it's one of the um, first movies that I saw, at least, that was really thinking about um, the apocalypse and the end of all things in what I would think of as kind of like a post-Christian way or like a secular way. Mm. Um, and it really is this kind of different way of thinking about the end of all things. I mean, even the title, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And Judgment Day, of course, comes up in the movie, right? Uh, Sarah Connor talks about Judgment Day and calls it Judgment Day. But, you know, what kind of Judgment Day is it, right? It's, um, it's, uh, uh, there's no Christ sitting in heaven kind of judging the good and the bad. It really is just all people end up dying, uh, except for some that can rebel against the robots. Um, so it's a really very different form of, of apocalypse. And I think that, that captures our imagination, though. Yeah. What about you, Adam? What was it like to go back and revisit this one? So I, like you, was taken to this movie at the uh, big Newport Cinema. It's a massive, massive movie theater. It probably holds about 1,500 people in the town that I grew up in. It's and It was packed. I remember it very vividly watching this movie and being in packed. Um, and the thing that that stood out to me then, I think, was the 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 T one thousand as this new sort of technology, this new tech that can come in and is is basically indestructible, and um, and it was the first time that that the special effects of a movie sort of overwhelmed me, and I thought, wow, this is this is amazing. Like, and for so long, the the most vivid picture is like what happens when this thing gets shot and these sort of like flowers that kind of like spread out of his of his body in a very strange way and i thought that this was just so creative so entranced by it and i think like like brennan um there's this there's this really interesting uh like contrast that's going on in the movie between the frailty of someone like john connor and sarah connor and these two warring machines that are sort of going after one another one that is like malleable and 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 slight and the other that is like indestructible and big and in many ways like this was this movie is conforming to that late 80s early 90s vision like what does an action star look like? And I think it presages and prefigures a lot of the ways in which we think about um, movies now. It, that there's a, a slight guy who's kind of fast and wiry and indestructible in his own way versus the big strong guy who's strong and like tears things apart. And I, I couldn't help watching this movie last night and thinking like, is this like like Hobbs and Shaw doesn't exist without <laughs> this movie, right? Like. Like, because these are the two like versions of what evil could look like. And, 
as I watched it today or last night, the, the thing that stood out to me was, uh, was the ways in which you have people working on robots, on tech, on something, and they think that it's mostly good for society and they have no understanding of what the final outcome of their decision making with respect with respect to their tech will be and that feels like very very real in 2019 which is smart people building things having no idea what's going to come of these things how they will ultimately be used what in what capacity they will be used in order to sow destruction in the world and i was surprised by how relevant T2 was with right. respect to its vision of the sort of technological future that was uh, that we were in store for. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a technocracy, right? There's this like the, the uh, Cyberdyne systems could be feels like an analog for all the ways in which we talk about uh, we talk about kind of Silicon Valley level um, kind of technocratic takeover of the way in which our normal lives go about. And it's that, 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 that scene, um, at, uh, Miles's house and kind of at the, at, at the scene right before the, the final act of the film where, um, uh, Miles gets confronted with the full scope of what Cyberdyne is about to do. Thanks to the work that he's doing, thanks to his inventions. And he has this, like, how are we supposed to know? And then, and, and Sarah Connor just lays into him. Like, how are you supposed to know? Like men like you built the hydrogen bomb men, like you thought it up. You think you're so creative. You don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life, to feel it growing inside you. All you know how to create is death and destruction. Just very powerful dialogue with that, um, with what feels like this just big, um, we built it because we could kind of impulse that definitely feels very modern to me. Yeah. The one thing that I think about the kind of technological stuff is that if a company was founded today, it would, that was going to take over the world, it wouldn't be Cyberdyne corporations, uh, or Skynet. It would be something like Twixler or Scoople or something like that. Um, you know, uh, um, but you know, other than that, I think, uh, you know, doodle, um, but it would be great. Uh, uh you know, that this, it's a great analog. And, and I, I, but I do think that the movie brings up so many huge topics for today. I mean, like the nature of the market and technology and, and science and, and, uh, innovation and how that, you know, who's kind of in charge of the ethical implications of these things. Um, uh, but also things like the nature of humanity. What is a human? Um, you know, what is the love, the, the difference between human and computer and can humans invent computers that can become like humans? And, uh, sometimes the, the computers are more human than the, you know, than the humans themselves, you know, at the, at the end of the movie, this, uh, kind of pathos that you feel for this computer as it goes, you know, lowering into the, the lava pit or whatever that is there. Um, uh, but the, I, I, I think the, the, the questions about the nature of humanity, uh, you know, are humans going to destroy, are we going to destroy ourselves? Um, or is it possible for us to find hope and to build a new future? Um, that's the one thing I think the movie really, and a lot of these secular apocalypses really don't get into much is the, the, the positive possibilities of apocalyptic thinking. That is, uh, the possibility of, of, of a future. And, uh, one of the things that struck me, I've heard people say this before, but, that, uh, you know, in the future, this post-apocalyptic future where the Terminator 
comes from and where John Connor, when he's a full adult, lives in, um, you know, we can imagine a world in which computers take over and try to destroy all of humanity. But like still it's a corporation that's running it. You know, we can't possibly think of a future without corporations in some way or another. You know? <laughs> right. um, our, the limits of our positive apocalyptic thinking that is like the utopian side of it, what kind of new world is possible? Um, that's something that I've loved that Brian Blunt keeps pointing out again and again about Revelation is that um, there is a positive element to world building too. And judgment as a way of making things right and good. Um, and that's that's a kind of judgment in the future that we don't see in a lot of um, contemporary cinema, but it still can prompt us to think that way, I, I, at least I think. I think so too. I mean, but that's that's such an interesting piece because I think when you're talking about a robot movie that, that assumes a future, uh, it assumes that there is some catastrophic, catastrophic event, right? Something has happened that counts as the apocalypse. You know, in the, over the last 50 years, it's usually some nuclear uh, warfare. It presses us into a, a new vision. I think uh, I'm reminded of, did you ever read The Canical for Leibovitz? Which yeah. is a, a 1960s, like, post-apocalyptic, very, very interesting book that uh, that marries the religious and the scientific and the post-apocalyptic nuclear war uh, into a really compelling story. But... I mean, like Terminator 2, it, it assumes that there's like this waste that lays over the land um, is is so all encompassing that it like it destroys everything, like all records, all knowledge, like knowledge actually gets destroyed. And then that knowledge has to be built back up again in some um, in, in some new way with respect to to like the apocalypse in that we see modern apocalypses with or or scriptural apocalypses the imagination of people who are in subordinate positions are always going to think about the destruction of the power above them right it is inevitable that it's it's central to the imaginative force of being in a subordinate position this is one of the only privileges that's actually afforded to you which is that you get to regularly fantasize about the destruction of the people who enslave you and who oppress you um what i think and what I think you you point to, Brennan, is that oftentimes, because movies and stories are told by people in positions of power, they just assume that they're only interested in destruction, not reg- recognizing that there is always creative potential. It's not as if like people just want to see the world burn. It's that they'd like something to be built upon it that's right. different than what yeah. had come before. And that's that I think is where this story is kind of interesting because the the twists of like John Connor is sending him like a Terminator back to protect himself. And that Terminator in some ways is the type of father figure he needs in order to become the type of leader that he will ulti- ultimately become is a very strange way to tell a story. Yeah. But at the center of it is like as human relationship. It's like, this movie's in many ways it's about a mother and a son and this weird surrogate father that comes into their life for four days. <laughs> right. Right. That's that's what it there's a surrogate and the uh, Sarah Connor even makes reference to it. Like she's staring at the Terminator, like protecting her son, and she says, you know, he never really had a father. And I was like, this is a very strange image of fatherhood, first of all. Yeah, I was but, wondering if I should invent a robot dad for my kids. That might help. I know. Like there's a robot dad, but I think 
what she's at least pointing to is that there is a need for security and protection of some sort, some measure of security and protection in order for us to begin to to have an imagination that can create a better future. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I don't know about like. I kept thinking about this movie and I couldn't get out of my head Two two stories. The, the first is um, the, the Jacob story. Right. So John Connor, his entire life is being told over and over again. No, you're you're going to be a very important general right. in the upcoming apocalyptic rebellion against machines and how hard that is for him to hear. Right. And there's similarly, Jacob is is told over and over again, look, you're the child of promise. Yeah, I know Esau is real important, but like you're the one. And and the the text tends to imply that 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 his mother is important in telling him that story. Um, and similarly, I kept wondering, like, did Mary and Joseph ever talk to Jesus about like this promise that they had had? <laughs> right, right. Like, because it's not I, mentioned, I, yeah. I, I, I kept thinking like, gosh, this is such a heavy burden for this kid to carry. Mm-hmm. Like, how does, how does he carry? And the, the movie doesn't tarry on it very long, but I, I had a ton of pathos for him as he's been told over and over again, he's going to be this very important person. And he's like, there is everything that I see says something contrary to that. I mean, he was even named JC. <laughs> John Connor. I mean, one question that made me have about Joseph, though, is it was Joseph a robot? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> why he disappears off the scene and like doesn't really have a very important character? Maybe I don't know. Um, what well, one one other thing that made me think about just uh, when you were talking about the canticle for Leibowitz and like other visions of apocalypse and dystopia, it made me think that uh, um, you know, there's kind of the the two paradigmatic dystopias the the 1984 where there's totalitarian control and terribleness the Skynet kind of feels like that right it's like trying to destroy wipe out all human life through violence and 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 its its power there's like the alternative dystopia of the brave new world right where um, the the totalitarian leaders just try to like basically uh, give people drugs and entertainment and so that they just don't care um, and that everything becomes trivial and it seems to me like uh, T2 is great for, for uh, showing you kind of like the hard side of apocalyptic power or whatever. But um, uh, but it got me to think about like the technology, the technology of war and warfare is you know hugely important in our own world today. Um, and that clearly can be a, a, a path to the end of the world as we know it. But thinking about the kind of human relations side of Terminator 2 and how much it, it, it talks about how much it, how important it is um, to have something like a family and real connections with people, even if they're robots, you know, got me to think about the the way that really, uh, you know, our uh, technological prowess, we still in the United States create a lot of weapons and sell them, but also, uh, you know, we have moved into this kind of attention economy, right? Where um, the point is really kind of like this soft uh, way of kind of, uh, uh, grabbing people's attention and keeping it, uh, involving machines, right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to my iPhone like everyone else is. Um, uh, the, the, like that pull me away sometimes from my family and from friends and things like this. Uh, but that, that, that too can be this kind of like apocalyptic, uh, unintended consequence, uh, of, uh, what, what technology is developing right now. And I saw this really interesting conversation between, um, the founder of Alibaba. Is it Jack, uh, Ma, I think, and um, Elon Musk, 
Recently, they had this kind of debate about artificial intelligence in the future. And uh, Elon Musk was saying, well, humans basically invented AI and now we're done. They can, robots can do, computers can do everything better than we can. We can't do anything better. Um, we have basically, <laughs> we have ended ourselves and we are just coasting on fumes. Like Wiley e. Coyote ran off the edge of the cliff. That's us after inventing computers. And Jack Ma was just kind of laughing right. and, uh, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, uh, he said computers um, can be crafty, but they don't have wisdom. Uh, and the, you know, humans have the wisdom to build computers. Anyway, just was really an interesting, I think, conversation that we're still in the middle of right now. And you know, Terminator Two, of course, you know, is uh, it started everyone thinking. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the, you know, this this it's a it, it did play an important <laughs> role in getting people to think about cyborgs and humans, and you know, uh, 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 in this kind of relationship. But also about them. Um, you know, I think I think now we're we're, we're dealing with our own kind of technological apocalypse of uh, of entertainment and distraction. So I'm interested in the question of, of the way in which this uh, this apocalyptic call in the film might be good news or hopeful news, uh, as it kind of calls the, the characters in this film ideally into some new way of being, uh, which you know is obviously first and foremost the the destruction of Cyberdyne, but in, and and obviously that the film hasn't if it was made in 2019 might depict the threats of apocalypse in a different light or with different, different technologies. Um, but it, it's also intriguing to me. One, one of the hallmarks of T2 is that it, it makes such an impression and has so much success. And then for 25 years, people have been failing to make sequels to this movie. Right. And, and such to the point that, that now we've got a new sequel coming out this fall, Jim Cameron producing one who, th- where the the marketing for it has made very clear that this sequel is in fact ignoring all pre- prior sequels because all the prior sequels were failures in their own way. We had Terminator Three, which attempted to show the kind of Judgment Day itself, or at least the the events that led to it. Uh, we had, and and then we've had various prequels and offshoots, and with the possible exception of the short-lived Sarah Connor Chronicles television show. This franchise has fallen off a cliff, and I, I wonder the degree to which that is a, a structural outcome of the way in which this film is built, uh, and, and the way in which this film resolves, where by necessity has this seed of hope at the end that Sarah Connor says that they have, they've, they've taken down Cyberdyne, they've destroyed the chip, they've destroyed all the files, all the research, Judgment Day has been averted. And yet we know that they haven't made a dent in the basic human impulse towards building this kind of technology or repeating this cycle again. And so I'm wondering where the kind of apocalyptic hope is in that very tender moment at the end where we are left, you know, going down the highway at night, good ending or not. What does a sequel look like? Yeah, you also have the problem of the, and I think it's, that's a great I- image of them going down the highway. And I think it, it, it ends really well that way, precisely because it is open for us to. It invites us to imagine the future, and it doesn't say too much about what it should be like, which I think is the is a good goal of apocalyptic uh, literature and and art is to try to get to get the viewer to start to think themselves, what kind of world would I want to live in? What kind of world do I want to exist in? Uh, and I think that's also a good thing, uh, that a lot of the, uh, prophetic literature in the old Testament that, uh, that tries to invite people to think about the future in a utopian way is very vague, 
But I think it's good. It, it should be vague because uh, we have to do the hard work of for ourselves in our own time and place trying to imagine what is good um, and what would be good for all people. Um, uh, what's a way to value all life? The, the, I think that it's really good right at the end when Sarah Connor uh, um, and John Connor have just kind of realized – with the help of, of, of the robot, uh, you know, what, uh, what the value of the human life actually is. Um, and, uh, and that it is important, uh, uh, to value and respect people for being people. Um, of course, some of them got shot in the kneecaps uh, near the end, but, um, but at least the Terminator didn't, didn't kill them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, a um, that, that, that image of going down the highway and being, and feeling open and free. And then you, you, the next movies have to go try to solve it some way, but also you have to deal with this kind of like very tight paradox that they've mm-hmm. created sure. with the birth of, you know, I don't know if you all have seen that um, German TV show dark. Uh, it's been put on Netflix. Um, mm. uh, and it's uh, it's an excellent series. They got two ser- two years of it now, two seasons of it now. Um, but it also deals with these kind of like a uh, paradoxical time loops. And I won't mm-hmm. ruin any of the show for you. I think if you like Terminator two, I think in the dark is a much more, um, it's much less action heavy, much more, uh, ruminative, um, and, and actually much more clearly theologically, um, involved, uh, uh, show, but it deals with these kind of paradoxes of time, um, where people are kind of related in ways that aren't possible through time travel. And it, it uh, uh, it's hard to break into that with like another story. Once they've got that, like they've, they've, yeah. they've killed off the Terminator and boiled it you know right well so, and i think that but that that moment is really important um yeah. where the hope is the moral center of the movie is john connor it's a kid he seems to understand like he teaches the terminator you can't you can't kill people and he's and the terminator says why <laughs> and he has to s- teach this robot over time what it means to have some sort of moral ethical center and the the movie seems to suggest, and it's not overt, but it suggests that over time, this Terminator is learning something. And we know this because by the end, we actually feel the sacrifice of this thing, right? We wouldn't right. care if it were just programmed. If it were just an, a robot that had been programmed to care and save John Connor, it sacrificing itself would have been part of the protocol and everyone would have been, okay, yeah, that's how it works. But we seem to recognize that it's capable of a measure of relationship. And if it's capable of that type of relationship, then maybe it can understand the things that we think are so central to what it means to be human. And in that way, I think the hope lies in some way in recognizing that there is a way for these these warring entities of robot and human to have some measure of relationship, which is why I was watching this movie and I thought, do you know what the best sequel is to Terminator 2? Spike Jones is her. Hmm. Yeah. Another robot movie. Right. Where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with a robot. Yeah. Because it's a it's a sense it's a it's a different take on the apocalyptic side of like AI, which is we think that we'll be warring with it. What's to say we're not going to fall in love with it? And right. I thought that that was what was so interesting about that particular movie is that it said like, whoa, 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 why are we always going to be antagonistic? Like, if this is artificial intelligence, why do we think it's going to um, automatically want to see us? Uh, you know, destroyed. If we are yeah, built for, for human relationship, then maybe it wants to be in relationship with us. And I thought what was 
so amazing about her and, and its vision, spoiler alert, is that by the end, it doesn't want to kill us. It just doesn't want anything to do with us. It moves into a place of, un, of understanding about the world and, and oneness where it's like I actually can find the relationship that I want with my other artificial intelligence family. And I actually don't need you frail human beings any longer. Yeah, I think that's actually part of the reason why the Terminator also has to die at the end of Terminator 2. It's because like it learned how to be like a human in terms of love. And then like then really what do we need humans for? All right, let's move on. Before we do, we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Uh, there's so many interesting things that they do. They're doing something recently that I really appreciate, which is um, they they have a they've coordinated a, a longer, more substantive lectionary uh, resource that is available, and it's a small subscription service, but it's monthly and it's very reasonable. And um, I've been uh, I've been really blessed by it because I think it's got really good content in it. So if you're, if you are preaching regularly and you need another lectionary resource, I think uh, it's a good place to turn. Also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the print edition of the century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Brennan, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for September 22nd. We are nearing the end of ordinary time. We've got Jeremiah weeping for Zion. We've got a prophecy of Amos. We've got Christ as mediator in 2 Timothy. And Jesus' strange parable about the shrewd managers, a few psalms alongside. Uh, Brennan, as you look through these passages, oh, th- this is a question that I, I love the fact that this podcast lets me ask this question. How does Terminator 2 help you think about <laughs> the lectionary passages that are in front of us this week? Well, uh, you know, to me, there are some clear, uh, you know, perhaps the author of Amos was thinking about Terminator 2. Um, well, maybe not. But uh, I do think there are some really clear connections. Um, to me, uh, you know, it, the, the Amos 8 reading, uh, I would pick Psalm 113 to think about um, and, and Luke 16, the gospel text. I think those, uh, at least for me, connect in some pretty clear ways. I mean, Amos 8 uh, really is about uh, uh, the, the, that, that little pericope there, the little section there. Um, uh, it it really focuses on uh, folks who are valuing their money and their uh, potential profits uh, over the lives of the other people in their community. Um, it's asking us where we put our priorities. And then also the idea that, uh, that they, they go to these religious services in order to kind of acquit themselves um, and uh, uh, sort of absolve themselves of all the terrible things that they would like to do in order to gain more money. So like during the Sabbath, they're just sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, when can when will this be over so that I can go get some more money? And they're scheming during it. So, I mean, to me, the kind of uh, critique of rapacious um, uh, capitalism and techno-capitalism um, uh, of the the sort of what uh, Eisenhower would call the military-industrial complex or something. I mean, that, the critique that, that goes throughout Terminator 2 and the uh, uh, the way that that's kind of coded in terms of gender is, is kind of this male thing in Terminator 2. And then it's set aside – Next to, and really in contra- uh, contradiction to the um, the kind of productive um, 
fecundity of Sarah Connor talking about how she created a life in her belly and loved it and is trying to create a community, you know, this family that is going to actually take care of people um, and how this is really an alternative to that, uh, the, the Cyberdyne Systems version of the future. And I think that uh, Amos is really struggling with some pretty similar, similar things. Um, he wants people to respect each other and he wants um, the people who have power uh, to be able to, to think through the consequences of their actions and their plans um, and how they use their resources to try to get more resources. And that's the, really their ultimate goal instead of um, respecting and, and uh, uh, trying to build up a community with their uh, fellow humans. For Psalm 113, um, I mean, to me, like the the praise that you get just throughout, like praise is kind of an insane thing. Like the insanity of praise is kind of like what I would think uh, Psalm 113 is all about, how ridiculous it would look to everyone. It depicts this kind of utterly wasteful day especially from the perspective of those who see like labor as the core of humanity, right? Our job is to work like robots, right? And we're going to praise from sunup to sundown. It's a kind of completely wasteful act. Um, not even something on this earth uh, either. I mean, it's praising something up in the heavens, this object of praise that is kind of beyond our world. I mean, of course, for those of us who believe that it's the, 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 the one who is in control of the cosmos is the one who we are praising. Um, but this is a sort of a pretty countercultural or counter market uh, kind of stuff, and this kind of rebelling against a hierarchy of power that exists on this earth. And then the Psalm 113 ends with this whole uh, bizarre thing that God does, which is that God is really interested uh, in taking the margins of society, like people um, stuck away in institutions uh, like Sarah Connor was, or jerk kids uh, like John Connor. Um, and God is interested in pulling them up and giving them places of honor and uh, respecting them. Uh, in the end of Psalm 113, there's this kind of end of social segregation um, based on hierarchy and social position. Uh, it ends, of course, uh, the very end of Psalm 113, I think it's a really interesting connection to T2. Um, uh, God ends up uh, uh, in, in this, the Psalm almost ends up reveling in the generativity of the feminine body, um, that uh, mm. God gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children, that out of, um, uh, out of a human body, there can come more life. Um, and that leads to joy and wonder and gratitude and praise. So I, th this is, I think, kind of God as the anti-Skynet. You know, God is in control, remote, but also <laughs> the whole point is to produce joy and wonder and gratitude, which is ultimately wasteful. Uh, um, and also God produces joy liberation, redemption of human life and potential. And, uh, uh, it's sort of rejecting the, the, the idea that capital and profit is in charge. Yeah, that's important. That's awesome. I, I, I love the idea that this, this idea of praise is it, it does, it's non-utilitarian, right? And if there's anything we know about robots, it's that they only know about like utility. It's that, that they have to have an end. Um, and, you know, Psalm 113 is trying to say, like, why? What's the point? Like, the end is the, like, it, it has an intrinsic good. The praise itself is intrinsically good. It doesn't need you to justify its existence by, by its outcome, by its utility, by its product. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely way to think about the, the vision of the psalmist as a sort of, not just, it's wasteful, as you said, and, and from the perspective of those who, who, who see labor as the, as the central of human existence or human worth and, uh, and, and instead seeing praise as like the, the, the inheritance of, of every living being. I mean, Psalm 148 is also a part of this too, right? Where like every, every creature on God's earth praises God in some manner or form, even the sea monsters and the, and the behemoth. 
Yeah, Brueggemann uses that um, Amos passage because of the um, because they're imposing on the Sabbath, right? Because p- part of what they're doing is uh, is using the Sabbath, which is time that is carved out to um, remind the Israelites that they are not simply valued for the labor they can create, uh, and and so to impose on that and to impose on that sense of what feels like wasted time or frivolous time is actually critical time because it is interrupting kind of the his my words not his the kind of capitalist logic of the the workers who are always otherwise on the clock so i think i think it's a really nice connection to some of the logic that hangs out in the background of the film adam what else what, what about you what else are you seeing when you look at the text well, I don't, I don't know about you, but in watching Terminator 2, I also thought about, um, you know, the, the the challenge of climate science and yeah. climate change that's in front of us, right? Like, so Sarah Connor knows that destruction is imminent and is is sure of it and is doing all of these things in order to stave it off. Right. Um, and John also knows, but is less sure until he has this sort of awakening moment where he actually meets a Terminator right. who is, who, who opens his eyes to the fact that, Oh, maybe my mom isn't crazy. Maybe she actually has, um, has insight and access to what is coming that I never fully realized. And I, I think about this with, with Jeremiah, but with all of the prophets who have some insight into what is to come into the destruction that's about to be levied upon Zion or, to the the world about which they're about to sort of move into and how that creates all sorts of crazy things in their lives, the types of crazy apocalyptic practices that they do, the prophetic theater that they engage in, the ways in which they're treated by the powerful and the elite around them. And, and, and it continues to raise for me the question of, okay, so what's our responsibility if we have some access to, um, an imminent threat. Uh, what's our responsibility? And this this question became an internet conversation this this weekend. I don't know if you were part of it, where the New Yorker published this weird, very fatalistic piece of uh, of writing by Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's strangely built on the same condescension and of of all the technocratic solutions that sort of uh, meet us with respect to climate change, um, which is to say, like, uh, you know, we're done for. Like, why are we putting all this money in things that aren't going to work? We should just bunker ourselves. Um, but I, but I kept thinking about like Sarah Connor, like takes things into her hands in a way that I, I quite, um, I quite admire. And as I think about sort of what, what is our prophetic role in, in this moment and what is it supposed to look like? And I, and I read, I read our, the prophets differently when I think about that. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I went to the same place with Sarah Connor carrying around this prophetic burden, um, the 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 knowledge of what is to come that seems crazy to everybody else who encounters it. Of course, until the moment when they need it, uh, it's you know it's so telling that as soon as Arnie shows up on the security cameras, the cops are right back there in the in, you know taking her um, ready to believe everything she says. Um, Brennan, I'm wondering if you could help me with this, uh, and this is not meant to be a pop quiz. What is the balm in Gilead? 
so, I mean, just the, the idea that there, at least the way I read it, uh, just the idea that there is some kind of, um, uh, like, is, is there anything that can help this, um, uh, this pain, like the pain that you, that, that is being felt right now because of the sin, but also because of the upcoming destruction. And I think I'm not actually clear about this. I'm not a, a massive Jeremiah scholar, although I should be, I've got an article I should be writing right now on Jeremiah. Um, but, uh, I, I, I do think you said that, you're talking Terminator too. <laughs> right. But I, I do think that there was, I mean, the, the idea is that there was actually some sort of like medicinal plant that you right. could find in Gilead, the place in the Transjordan. Um, that, uh, so in other words, like it's supposed to be like, yes, there is a balm in Gilead, you know, but like, yes, the, there is a, um, there is hope, there is something, but you know, also this question, like, what if we're at a place where there actually isn't any balm left in Gilead, you know, like what if there is no more, a grace, mercy, peace, justice, what if there is no more? And you're kind of facing up to these questions about, um, like, what if there's no comfort for me anymore? And that, you know, that's kind of a flipped question. I guess that's my, my, my question for the text there, which kind of impacts the way in which I might connect it to the film, is 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 the balm meant to be uh, a source of comfort that uh, kind of anesthetizes the prophet to what is going to happen to God's people no matter what? Or is it something that actually does reparative and restorative work to the major issue at hand? So is it, is it just, you know, Jeremiah asking uh, for a, a couple of shots to help at the end of the day so that he can sleep through the night? Or is it something that does real work? And I, I, that's, that's part of my question as I think about, uh, and I, I know I'm, I'm, hard, I, I'm kind of lingering on this, as I think about the way in which this film resolves and the, the 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 small victory that is won by our bag, by our band of protagonists and yet the the kind of it seems like a small victory up and against the weight of of human sin that is painted by the film as a whole it's not like cyberdyne is not going to crop up again in some other form and so it's that yeah. it's that very tender thing uh that where where the film rests and leaves us. Yeah. And there's one other thing about this passage. I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, in Jeremiah, it's kind of always hard to tell who's talking, whose words are these. Sure. And, right. uh, you know, so it's kind of hard to tell who's saying that, who's asking if there's balm in Gilead. And it, uh, like chapter nine, verse one, oh, that my head were a spring of water. And my eyes were a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. And there's a lot of folks who, um, suggest that this is, uh, this is God. This is mm. God crying. This is the pathos of God. And, Perhaps, you know, in light of T2 might help us to think about the fact that, you know, we might imagine God as a giant robot in the sky with like a, you know, judgment day is going to be this kind of accounting, right, that takes place where like marks on a page, yes, no, yes, you know, separating people by what they've done. But instead to think that even the people that God is um, in this passage kind of uh, uh, imagining, contemplating, uh, sweeping away and destroying um, but that there is this pathos and like almost terror and, and uh, 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 sadness um, that God is going to cry all night and day for these people that God is also going to kind of tear down. So there's this like really interesting uh, insight into divine pathos there, I think. I think that's a good place to end our conversation. We'd like to take a second just to thank Brennan. Brennan, thanks for being here. Um, we always enjoy having you here, especially when we need to talk about robots or, um, you know, post-war Vienna. So we're glad you're here, man. Anytime. Thanks, guys.
Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Uh, so I'm, I'm in, in the spirit of the new Terminator movie coming out. I'm thinking about uh, what it, this kind of spate of uh, long lost franchises that keep circling back to existence. We got a new Top Gun movie. We had a new Ghostbusters movie. We've had, a, you know, we got a new uh, Bad Boys movie. We got a new Coming to America movie. Nothing dies anymore. And Mary Poppins just came out Mary last Pop- year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The list goes on and on. And I and and for the most part, I feel like. And many of those haven't come out yet, but the ones we've seen have been mediocre to disappointing for the most part. And, and I, and I want to take a moment to shout out uh, what I thought was a, a pretty good uh, recall of of, a, of an old franchise, which was over this past summer, uh, the, the Hulu limited series uh, of Veronica Mars that came back on the air. Um, and I was, I watched it. I was, I was a big Veronica Mars fan when it was originally on the air mid two thousands, uh, and had three seasons on, on, on CW and UPN, um, kind of didn't have a long shelf life, but had a big kind of cult following, um, managed to successfully kickstart a movie that came out, uh, 2013 or so. Uh, that was that was exactly mediocre. It was the 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 C average of of mo- all movies that have ever been made. Uh, yeah, dead center. <laughs> but uh, Hulu came back this year with uh, with a eight part series uh, that is pretty good, and and it prompted me then to go back and watch a bunch of the first season episodes for the first time in a decade or so. And it was striking. I was kind of thinking about what uh, what are the criteria that made this new one work? And it was both kind of it was a faithfulness of character, but it was also um, this incredible amount of room that they had given their characters to grow and breathe and change uh, that I really appreciated. And I think it shows up especially in contrast with going back to season one episodes where you get questions about um, you get questions about. Uh, sexuality and sexual violence that are treated much differently in the mid 2000s than they are treated in 2019. And what emerges is uh, a pretty compelling and believable character arc of a character that you first met in 2004, who has now um, had a chance to grow and mature and be changed by the world we've all been a part of at the same time. So the by time she appears on the scene in 2019, she is in her own ways, just as sort of grizzled by um, the last five years worth of news as we all are. There's something that felt really honest and um, narratively compelling about that, that worked really well for me. And it helped me think about, how some of these franchise reboots work and how some of them don't. So, all right. And for you, Adam, what's up with you? So this is going to sound a little strange. I um, I would like to give a full-throated endorsement after watching Terminator 2 uh, to uh, just theological education. Now, there are really good reasons to critique the, the model by which theological education is done in this country. and. It was in watching Terminator 2 and just seeing the the ways in which people are trying to marry what can be with what we are uh, what we are able to do with what we should do 
just reiterated how important it is to have a sort of broad-based liberal education that can that asks you to think about questions from a variety of different locations. And I will say that in my experience, theological education can get very narrow. But in my experience, the the best article that I read on artificial intelligence was by a Berkeley philosopher that was assigned to me in seminary. And it's by a guy named Hugh Dreyfus. And I may have talked about it before, but um, it's his full-throated defense about why artificial intelligence and why robots aren't humans and will never be humans because they lack some very important parts of human being. And, um, and I couldn't help but like reflect on that, a, a paper that I read, I don't know, 15 years ago now and think, thank God that this was part of my education too, which is to think critically about things. And, and I'm, this is all, to say that there there's some hope that we will that some scientists somewhere will figure out new technology that will help us with climate change and i want to say sure i i welcome all of that new technology while also wanting to say we need a deeper understanding of morals of human relationship of community a deeper understanding of what it means to live uh, together as as a single people, what stewardship looks like, what creation looks like. These are all vital and important questions for us to actually approach a, 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 a response to the coming climate crisis or the current climate crisis. So I, I don't know. I'm, I couldn't help but like just when I went to bed and prayed last night, I was like, I'm grateful for the education that I was that I was given that forced me to to ask these questions in a way that um, I think is really important for our world today. Adam, I didn't read that article in seminary, but I I, I got some of the same from the the well esteemed uh, the noted academic Dr. Ian Malcolm, uh, <laughs> who who famously pointed out that your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could they didn't stop to think if they should that of course is 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 from the like spiritual sequel to terminator 2 known as jurassic park yeah and and jeff goldblum okay let me ask you a quick question <laughs> how much better would terminator 2 be if jeff goldblum was in him as dr ian malcolm where would you put him i just want ian malcolm to record a commentary track for terminator <laughs> 2 in character <laughs> <laughs> that is an amazing idea. Patented. Matt, that's a Matt Gaventa patent. You all heard it here. That would be amazing. So our new business, Matt, we create you commentary create tracks, tracks of other movies right. with characters from other movies. And I've known you a long time. Maybe most genius idea. I'm sorry. The, so uh, the, the internet cut out just a little bit there. I'd like you to repeat that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Matt, this might be your most genius idea. It's so good. 
And I'm it, mad I didn't think of it. It might be, and that may be a backhanded compliment to all of the previous ideas <laughs> I've had. All right, friends, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Bad to the Bone. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.